Good morning, everyone. I wanted to uh, share today's message with you on this Palm Sunday. I'm going to ask you all now to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. And uh, we're going to be looking at a couple different passages here this morning, but uh, this is going to be our primary passage, Matthew 21, 1 through 11. And in, in our text here this morning, we find a, a coronation for a king. But as little as we know about coronations today, we don't really have a lot of experience here with coronations in America. As a matter of fact, we, we don't have any kings. We don't deny, I mean, we've denounced kings. That's why we uh, came to America, or our founding fathers did. But we do know enough to know that this isn't like any of the coronations we've ever been exposed to. Nor does it seem like any other coronation with which history has been familiar with. I mean, when we, when have we ever seen a king riding on a donkey's colt, meek and lowly, with people throwing tree branches and old clothes in the path, if you will? Now, this is a very important event in these 11 verses because it initiates the last week of the life of our Lord prior to his crucifixion. It is his last public act prior to being crucified, the last event of his ministry. And it has to be treated with a great amount of respect. And it has to be understood for what it really is. Or you won't understand what comes after it here on Resurrection Sunday. I really feel that the earthly coronation of Jesus Christ, sometimes called the triumphal entry, gets bypassed far too much. It is a very significant event, and you'll see this unfold as we examine this together today. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time together in his holy word. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for the truth of your word. I thank you, Lord, that even though we're unable to gather together physically, that we can gather together in your word as the body of Christ. And so I ask, Lord, that you would give us open hearts and an open mind to your wonderful truth. And that, as always, we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And so, Father, be with us now in this hour, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let me give you a little background for our text here before we unpack it. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, every, everyone knew that a, a, a significant event was taking place. I mean, this was the day that God's people had been praying for. They had they were been under the impression, oppression of Rome. Uh, they're really nothing more than just a vassal state at this point. Uh, they don't have a real king with any authority. They have a figurehead king. Um, and the reason is because the Romans wouldn't let them have one. They couldn't appoint a high priest because the Romans had said, we have to approve whoever it is that you choose. That's just actually why they have two high priests. They have the ones the, the high priest the Romans approved and then the one that uh, that God said should be the, uh, the high priest. And according to God's word. Uh, and so they said, hey, listen, we've got to approve whoever it is that you choose. We've got to make sure they're going to work with us and not against us. And we want to make sure your high priest doesn't get any ideas about leading some sort of uh, revolt against uh, against us. So we're going to keep the ceremonial robes of your high priest locked up in the guard towers here. And then uh, we'll let you have them again for Passover and for some holy days. But only if uh, we don't see any sort of um, 
any sort of revolt on your part. And in case the people who come to the temple are going to get any crazy ideas, uh, we built a giant fortress named after Mark Antony called the Antonia. And it's located and built right next to the side of your temple. That's right. We built it on the side of your most precious building, the structure that means everything to you. That's where we built our fortress. Now, your temple will fall under the long shadow of our fortress. So when you come up to Passover, make sure you look up and see all of us there. Matter of fact, when you look up uh, around the temple, you're going to see that we have Roman soldiers uh, with their spear tips gleaning in the sun. And there are going to be 600 soldiers on duty there at all times. And this fortress has four giant columns that are 14 stories high. So we can look down on your temple area and make sure nothing gets out of hand. Now, despite the crippling political power of the Romans, the, the Jews had not given up hope. I mean, their prophecies had said a savior would come and that a king would someday ride into Jerusalem to, to deliver God's people from uh, the oppression of the ungodly. So as we turn to our Bibles now in Matthew 21, verse 1, let's look at that together. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. So verse 1 tells us that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and this kind of gives us the setting then for uh, our text this morning. And as we begin to see the unfolding of this marvelous coronation, I want you to notice, first of all, that this is, again, the end of the road for Jesus' earthly ministry. He never is ever going to leave the vicinity of Jerusalem after this. This is it. He uh, is going to die in this city. And after 33 years of life, with 30 of those lived in relative obscurity, the mission of the Lord's earthly life and ministry is about to be completed here. Now, the Lord is moving directly toward Jerusalem, knowing full well that it was Passover time, knowing full well that this is the end of his earthly ministry, and knowing full well that it's time for him to die. And as he moves towards Jerusalem, he moved among others who were also going to the Passover feast. And so a crowd is collecting as he begins to approach uh, Jerusalem. Little do they know as he's traveling with them that he actually is the Passover lamb. At the same time, though, in preparation for the Passover, the city is literally teeming with humanity. Well, how many people are there? Well, there's a lot of speculation uh, ranging from hundreds of thousands to, uh, to several million. We're not really sure, but we do have an idea. If we, we know that 10 years later, someone actually counted how many lambs had been sacrificed in that particular year. And this, again, this is 10 years after uh, the crucifixion of our Lord. And they estimated that somewhere around 260,000 Passover lambs were slaughtered during that week 10 years later. And if that's the case, the Jewish law prescribed one lamb for 10 people. That would have meant as many as 2.6 million people in the city. So either way, it literally would have been spilling over with a lot of people. Now, before Jesus goes into the city, he comes to this place called Bethpage. Now, again, we don't know anything about this place. We can't find any archaeological evidence of its existence. We know it was some kind of small village somewhere near Bethany, because in verse 2 we read, 
saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. So when Jesus says, Go into the village opposite of you, and when Jesus sent them, he was in Bethany. So we know from the text, this is a small village near Bethany, and we know that Bethany is about two miles east of Jerusalem, just on the other side of the Kidron Valley, on the back side of the Mount of Olives. Now, I'm going to have you keep your place in Matthew 21 here, and I want you to go to the Gospel of John, chapter 12 now. The Gospel of John, chapter 12, uh, because this gives us a little interesting note that kind of adds to what we're reading here in Matthew 21. So let's look at verses 1 and 2 of the Gospel of John, chapter 12. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. But before he goes into the city, he stops and he goes to Bethany because that's where his friends lived, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And they made him a supper and Martha served as she always does. And Bethany becomes for him, for these six days, a resting place. He spends the time with his, his dear friends who, with the exceptions of the apostles themselves, these are the three dearest people in Jesus's life. It is now six days before the Passover. That's Saturday, and there was a supper in his honor, and he was anointed, and he was loved by everybody but one. And it must have been a warm and wonderful time. It's six days before the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, the true sacrifice, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world is to be offered. It's six days from the nails, six days from the thorns, the spitting, the cursings, the spear, the crown of thorns, the hatred, the bitterness, the sin-bearing, and the loneliness of being God-forsaken. Six days, that's all. Well, the next day, John chapter 12 tells us in verses 9 to 11 that many Jews came to see him. Many, many Jews, as we read, the large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. So there's a great gathering about him, so much so that the leaders are very concerned as to how they might kill him because he's such a threat. Well, his coronation is near, and he knows that. You might even say everything looks like it's right on schedule. He's been anointed. His friends are caring for him. Many people are moving out to see him, who have heard of his power in raising Lazarus from the dead, which he'd already done. So the first day he arrives, he has supper, he's anointed. Now let's stop back then again at Matthew 21. And the next day a multitude gathers to him. And then probably on the next day, which most likely was Monday, Jesus sent the two disciples. Again, it says he in verse 1, he actually initiates his own coronation. He sets it all in motion. All in motion. He, initiated, he initiated everything, incidentally. He's controlling every element of his own ministry. Every turn, every action was sovereignly his to initiate. 
And in the same way, he dispatches the two disciples, it doesn't tell us who these two are, to start into motion his own coronation. He tells them in verse 2, again, go to the village opposite you, which would be Bethpage. He's controlling everything. But let me tell you why. He wants to demonstrate to the world that he is not a victim of circumstances. That this is all under his total control. It's all within his own sovereign power. Every detail was worked out before time began with absolute precision. He wanted to create a mass demonstration. He wanted people to cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. He wanted them to cry out that he was the Messiah because he wanted it in their very mouths that he had indeed proved himself to be who he claimed to be. He wanted them to speak for themselves that there was absolutely no doubt about whom this king is that they're about to celebrate. He wanted that whole crowd, that, that whole multitude to be crying out that this was the Messiah so that forever and always... It could never be said that they didn't have enough information. They knew exactly what he had taught. They knew what he had done. And there's another reason that he created this mass demonstration. And that is because it would lead to the anger of the Pharisees, which in turn would lead for them to desire his life, which would ultimately lead to his crucifixion. And he had to set that in motion, too, because it was important not only that he be selected as the lamb to die, but that he die on the Passover day. I don't know if you know this, but the day he rode in there on Monday was the day traditionally that Jews selected their lamb for the sacrifice. And it was on that day that he offered himself as the lamb who would take away the sin of the entire world. And he had it set in motion so that by Friday, the Passover day, he would die. And so Jesus took charge of all these events, creating the situation as he wanted to create it. He also sent the disciples to get these two animals in order to fulfill a prophecy, which it tells us here in Matthew 21, verse 4. This took grace to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, Gentile, and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. He's in control of everything. He's on a divine schedule, and so he initiates his own coronation as king. Now, I want you to look at a second feature in this passage, and it's actually the fulfillment of prophecy. He's going to be the king the prophets all predicted. Now, keep your place in Matthew 21 for just a minute and go back a couple books here, just two books to your left. You're going to have Matthew and then Malachi and then Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 9. Now, in Zechariah chapter 9 is an important prophecy for us. And in the first eight verses of Zechariah chapter 9, there's a prophecy about a great ruler that will come. And this great ruler is going to come and there's going to be a deliverance for Israel under him. And he will deliver them from the Syrians and the Philistines and, and in fact, all of their surrounding en enemies. And he'll save Israel. But basically, verses 1 through 8 is a prophecy of Alexander the Great. 
who was the human conqueror. But after Alexander Great, Alexander the Great, there'll come one who's even greater than him. And verse 9 is in contrast to the first eight verses. Alexander the Great is just used for comparison here. Alexander and his military triumph would ride in on a great white horse with all of his entourage, flashing his sword in the sun and with a great crown signifying him as the conqueror of the world. And the great military genius of Alexander with all of his entourage had come to the rescue of Israel just as it had been prophesied. But there's another king that begins in verse 9, and he is righteous and he has salvation. So then this seemingly inconceivable and contradictory statement, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, what in the world kind of prophecy is that? Nobody rides in, no, no military conqueror would ride in on a donkey. I mean, donkeys used to have a place of significance in the world until Solomon came along and, uh, and Solomon made the horse the animal of dignity and honor and war. And donkeys became nothing but just simple beasts of burden. And nobody rode a donkey, certainly not for a coronation. But, says the prophet, your king will ride in on one. And this is unlike any other coronation ever. That's right, because he's a king like no other king ever. And so Jesus then tells them, the Lord has need of this. And they'll respond and send them with you. And he's absolutely in sovereign control. He's fulfilling every prophecy along the way. Look again at verse 4. It says, All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. And that's just what we just read in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Again, it's just what the prophet said. He's not a king like Alexander the Great. He's Israel's own king. He's not cruel. He's not aggressive. He's righteous and bringing salvation. Literally, the text says, showing, showing himself a savior. He's not slaying enemy. He's saving his people. He's not rich in material goods. He's poor and humble and, and meek. He's not proud and boisterous and arrogant. He's humble. He's not riding a great white steed stallion. He's riding a donkey's colt. Now, what's the point of riding the donkey? Again, the point is he's a king unlike any other king. And he's having a coronation unlike any other coronation. And he's declaring who he is in a very, very important way. Now, listen carefully. The people wanted a military messiah. They wanted a military conqueror. They wanted somebody to come in and by great power overthrow the Romans, kick them out of the land, and then uh, deliver the temples they could worship again in the temple and have their land that God had promised them back to them again. But here is Jesus coming directly in a way that would show them that he's not interested in doing that. He had had he come in on a white horse with a flashing sword in his hand, they would have known what he was coming to do. But he's riding in on a donkey's colt, weaponless, meek, and lowly. It was so different. 
He sovereignly arranged all this before time began to fulfill his prophecy. Listen, he didn't come to make war with Rome. He came to make peace with God for men. And he came as the one offering that peace. But they were looking for a different kind of king, weren't they? Matthew 26, verses 6 and, tell, six and 7 tells us the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their colts on them. And he sat on the colts. So they did just what he had told them to do. Now imagine with me what that day must have been like for the gathered crowd. The rabbis had said that it would happen on Passover, that the Messiah would come and judge the ungodly. Well, here it is. It's Passover week. And there are millions of Jews all from all over the world who have come to Jerusalem for the Passover. And as they fill the streets... A victory parade starts to form at the edge of the city. It's a two-mile parade that, that heads into Jerusalem, into the very heart of Jerusalem. And people, you can just imagine, would turn to each other and say, this prophet from Nazareth, Jesus, he's the one. He has to be. He just healed two people. He just raised somebody from the dead. It's incredible. Jesus is coming this way now, rocking slightly as he rides down that steep hill from the Mount of Olives. People would be waving and shouting. He's riding on a small donkey colt. He isn't coming in like one of the arrogant Roman generals on their war horses. He's coming in humility like Solomon did. The son of King David who rode on a mule through this very same Kidron Valley when he came into Jerusalem to take up the throne as king. Jesus is coming from the Mount of Olives, where the prophets had said the Messiah would come. Now notice the response to Jesus' entry in Jerusalem in verses 8 and 9. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road. The others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They were overwhelmed with joy. The people began to cry out, Jesus, he must be the one. He's the new king of Israel. Praise God. Hosanna. Quick, take off your coat. Lay it down in the road in front of him. Run and cut those branches from the palm trees and lay those down too. Now notice that they're throwing palm branches and spreading their coats before him on the road. Why are they doing that? It's a sign of submission to his authority and rule. It's as if to say, I'm under your feet. Take a, I, I take a place of submission to you. I throw myself at your feet so you may walk over me. And the palm branches they threw down, palm branches indicated in John 12 that they are palm branches were actually signs of salvation. They were used as symbols of joy. And you can read about that in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. They were waved at a great time of joy or a great time of celebration. And so they're celebrating the coming of salvation, the coming of deliverance. And there's a great sense of joy and excitement as Jesus enters the city. And they know who he is and they know what he has taught and they've seen the miracles he has performed and they, they know he can even raise the dead. And so this multitude moves out. They throw everything at his feet. 
And look what they cry. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna. That means save now. Save now. They're crying for salvation. He's closer now. And people are yelling, Bless the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise the new son of David. Blessed is the king of Israel. And all those who are there at this Passover are singing their ancient Passover song out loud. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then there's the blessed one himself. Finally come to judge the ungodly, they think. The crowd can't wait to see what happens when he rides into Jerusalem. They think to themselves, this Messiah will judge these ungodly. He'll finally remove those pagan Romans from power. He'll, he'll ride up to, to the Antonia and make his way into their fortress, the very heart of the ungodly, and he'll drive them out of there. And then our glorious temple will finally be free and cleansed from these pagans. Now listen to me. It is not soul salvation that they're looking for, is it? It's military deliverance they're after. I mean, after all, what does the Passover celebrate? The Passover celebration is a, is a celebration of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. How God delivered his people out of bondage. How he delivered them out of the captivity of Egypt. And now here at the very time we celebrate our God delivering us from Egypt comes a new deliverer to deliver us from Rome. And Jesus will deliver us from the bondage and the oppression of the Romans, is what they're thinking. And at the very center of all this excitement is a man on a donkey. And he doesn't have an army. And he's not carrying a weapon. And yet hundreds of thousands of people are crushing around him, crying out, Save us now! Deliver us now! Blessed is he, the son of David, the king of Israel. They wanted a king that would deliver them now. And let me remind you again, they know who he is. They know he is the Messiah. They just didn't understand the type of salvation this Messiah is offering them. They knew he was a king. They just didn't understand the nature of his kingdom. And yet they sum it all up at the end of the week when they say, we will not have this man, what? Reign over us. In other words, this isn't the kind of king we want. This isn't the kind of king we're looking for. My friends, you, you see, you have to take Jesus for who he is, not for who, whom you want him to be. But oh, how difficult that is for us, isn't it? People today, people of all times have wanted Jesus, but they want Jesus on their own terms. They want the Jesus of their own invention, their own liking. They want the Jesus who walks in and says, I'm going to solve all your problems. I'm going to deliver you from all your enemies. I'm going to make life wonderful for you. But they don't want the Jesus who comes into the city and immediately takes a whip and cleans out their dirty house. He was saying to them, you don't need to be freed from Roman bondage. That's not your biggest issue. You need to be free from sin's bondage. 
You don't need to solve your problem with Rome. That's not the priority. You need to solve your problem with God first and foremost. And that's why he came. He was not the Jesus who comes to offer a magic fix for all of their earthly, worldly problems. He was the Jesus who comes to offer men and women peace with God for how long? Eternally. Well, it's an unusual coronation, isn't it? It really is. And they would not accept him on his own terms. So by the end of the week, they cried for his blood and they crucified him. And my friends, the world is still like that. You know, people are open to the Jesus they want, the Jesus that they've defined. If he gives them the, what they want, if he keeps them healthy and, and makes them prosper and gives them worldly happiness as they define it, or instant healing, or whatever it is that their little heart desires. But as soon as Jesus confronts the sinfulness of sin and seeks to turn their hearts towards God in true salvation, they rebel against him. Oh, that's not the Jesus I want. That's not the king I want. Well, it's not much different today, is it, than it was then? Well, we end of the chapter here gives us another group of people here. And uh, these folks, we'll just call them confused with a lot of questions. And it's a good place for us to finish our text here this morning. And we see that in verses 10 and 11. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So the crowd is just moved and kind of swept up. And the people are caught up in this whole deal. And they say, who is this Messiah? Who are, who are we hailing? Who is this anyway? And they answer and say, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. So there's no question here, folks. God in this passage is telling the whole world that they knew exactly who their Messiah was. There's no question about it. They were hailing Jesus from the village of Nazareth in the region of Galilee, who was a prophet. They've already affirmed that on many occasions, that he was the one who was the son of David, who was coming from the Lord to bring deliverance. They knew who he was. The real question is, do you know who he is? You see, the problem for them was that they knew who he was. They saw all of his great power. They heard his words of truth. They, they listened how he spoke with authority like none of their teachers had. But they didn't want his kingdom on his terms. All they wanted was whatever Jesus could do for them now, today, in this life, in this moment. They were not interested in an eternal kingdom. They had no interest in being confronted about their sins. And when they realized that he was here to offer them abundant eternal life and not abundant material life right now, how did they respond? They cursed him. They crucified him. They killed him. And that's how it is with Jesus. He offers himself as a king. And there are a few who understand, a few. And they embrace him as the king that he is. The king of peace who brings salvation and reconciles men with God. 
And then there's another group of people who understand who he is and they hear that God offers them eternally, but they're just looking for something external right now. They want the here and now kingdom and they want it fast. Jesus, what have you done for me? What can you do for me now? What have you done for me lately? They're not willing to face the reality of their sinfulness and the emptiness and that estrangement from God, that, that hole in the middle of their soul that they've tried to fill with so many things, that, but yet nothing ever satisfies that emptiness, that feeling of estrangement from God. And so they curse him when he confronts that this is what you need to do. Let me ask you, my friends, which group would you be in in this coronation? Would you be in the group that is saying, blessed is the one, blessed is the son of David who comes to save us? Are you in the group who says, save us now, dear Lord? Or are you in the group who want the kingdom of here and now today? What can you do for me today, Jesus? Fix my problems today, Jesus. I'm not interested in your eternal kingdom. That's a long way away for me. I'm interested in what you can do for me today. Are you in the group that's just confused? I'm not sure what to believe. I, I know in my heart that this is true, but I'm not sure what I should do. Let me ask you this. Who is Jesus to you? Is he just some nice guy? Is he just some example setter? Is he just a prophet with a good message? Or is he God? Is he Jesus? The Lord? The second person in the Godhead? Who came to this earth? Who humbled himself? put on human flesh, lived his life, came to die on a cross so that all who believe in him shall have eternal life. Let me ask you, my friends, which king are you looking for? Which king are you looking for? Are you looking for a king who satisfies your here and now? Or are you looking for the king who is the king eternally? And whether you recognize him or not, he is indeed King of Kings and Lord of Lords. My friends, if you're listening here today and you've never, ever trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be the day. I pray that today would be the day that you humble yourself, that you view yourself with the lens that God looks at you, Instead of comparing yourself with others, compare yourself to the holiness and perfect righteousness of God. The Lord tells us that the wages of sin are death and that we only need to have committed one sin to be guilty. And the word of God tells us also that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here's the good news. God did not leave us in that state, my friends. 
he who knew no sin became sin for us. It was Jesus who took on that sin in his atoning work on the cross on our behalf. Jesus paid it all. Our sin, past, present, and future. What we need to do, my friends, is believe in him. Believe that he is God. Believe that he was that he died, was buried, and rose again on the third day and will return again someday. My friends, have you trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? I pray that you have. And if you have not, may today be the day when you just surrender your life to him. Oh, the angels will rejoice when you do that, for you will be forever a child of the King. My friends, this concludes our message here for today. I thank you for listening on this Palm Sunday. And I pray that the Lord blesses you and watches over you and keeps you safe. I look forward to next week's message on Resurrection Sunday. God bless you all.